Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, whatever time it is, wherever you be. Uh, thanks for joining me. It's Ramsey Scott, and I am coming to you with your spring 2020 COVID-19 American Autobiography podcast. You were listening to uh, Little Star of Bethlehem by the German experimental rock band known as Can C-A-N, uh, late 60s, early 70s. Um, I'm going to talk about the texts that we're reading for our class right now and uh, a bunch of ideas, hopefully, that will be of interest to you, if not of interest, perhaps at least useful for our course in American Autobiography. So stick with me. Please contact me with questions, uh, uh, concerns, um, if there are things that you'd like to know more about or that I didn't talk about, that I don't talk about, that you want me to talk about, let me know. Email me. Join the discussions on Blackboard and let's stay connected even if we have to physically distance from one another uh, at the moment. Thanks so much for joining me. I hope that you are healthy, safe, and sound. And here we go with uh, uh, some thoughts, perhaps scattered, perhaps digressive, as some have observed, who knows, regarding American autobiography. Uh, so I'm going to dive right in and read a portion of incidents in the life of a slave girl that comes from the chapter The Church and Slavery. It's chapter 13 in your text. And I'm looking toward the end of that chapter um, where uh, there is a confrontation between our narrator, Linda. Linda Brent was uh, the name, the pseudonym that Harriet Jacobs published under. And uh, she assigned herself the name Linda in the text. Uh, that is relevant for some when it comes to autobiography and the history of the genre as studied by literary scholars. At some point, I'll say more about that. Uh, but for now, uh, Linda in the text, our narrator, is uh, again dealing with her tormentor, uh, her quote-unquote master, Dr. Flint. And uh, Dr. Flint, of course, uh, joins the church. When I was told that Dr. Flint had joined the Episcopal Church, I was much surprised. I supposed that religion had a purifying effect on the character of men, but the worst persecutions I endured from him were after he was a communicant. The conversion of the doctor the day after he had been confirmed certainly gave me no indication that he had, quote, renounced the devil and all his works, end quote. In answer to some of his usual talk, I reminded him that he had just joined the church. Yes, Linda, said he, it was proper for me to do so. I am getting on in years and my position in society requires it, and it puts an end to all that damned slang. You would do well to join the church too, Linda. There are sinners enough in it already, rejoined I. If I could be allowed to live like a Christian, I should be glad. You can do what I require, and if you are faithful to me, you will be as virtuous as my wife, he replied. I answered that the Bible didn't say so. His voice became hoarse with rage. How dare you preach to me about your infernal Bible, he exclaimed. She goes on to complete the chapter. 
with the comment, no wonder the slaves sing, all Satan's church is here below up to God's free church. I hope to go. Okay, so let's think about what's happening in the scene for just a moment. Um, because uh, the we've talked a little bit about the role of religion in this text. And, and one of the fascinating aspects of the history of Christianity is that uh, Christi that, that there is a relationship to te textuality, uh, to textual interpretation that's so vital to the religion. And I, it's not my field, comparative religion is not my field, uh, religious studies um, and, and classics even, you know, these are, these are, this is not my area of expertise. So um, I can't speak to all of the um, the entire history of you know the Septuagint to the this uh, version of the Bible that version of the Bible the Septuagint is one of the oldest surviving uh, um, tech, uh, texts of the Bible um, you know Aramaic versus Hebrew and the many different ways of translating and so on uh, I'm just pointing to that that massive. Um, uh, territory, vast, complicated uh, 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 world of its own that that exists around the text of the the Bible, you know, with the Old and the New Testament, and uh, and observing that there's an ongoing, endlessly um, uh, elaborating debate about the text itself and about how to understand that text. And that's an essential, an essential aspect of the history of Christianity, which also gets played out in the Reformation. And the, you know, there is a shift from uh, centralized uh, authority that determines what the text means and how to interpret it and so on, uh, to uh, the endlessly uh, di di diversifying uh, um, variety of Protestantisms where, uh, in many cases, interpretation of the text uh, falls upon religious leaders in uh, various localities. And, you know, there's a, there's a dispersion of power uh, and, and literacy in and of itself becomes tremendously empowering. You know, uh, there's a here is a, a, a religion founded on the principle that uh, a true relationship with God does not depend on any institutions. It depends on uh, right, right action and right beliefs. And there is no authority between the individual and God, at least in theory. And that's that that seems to be an aspect of Christianity that's very much written into its te its foundational text because of the story of Jesus, and that could be a whole other digression, but uh, I'll save it for uh, another time. Okay, now I wanna hit pause here on this consideration of uh, the Bible in relation to, and the, and the many layered uh, aspects of um, the Bible as it relates to Jacob's text. Um, and uh, for just a moment to comment on, um, or digress briefly, uh, and to look at this from a bird's eye view, uh, considering a couple of different, uh, critical theor theories or methodologies uh, that uh, from the past, you know, 50 or 60 years that, uh, and how they might approach this text in, in different ways. So um, on the one hand, there's uh, structuralism, uh, which 
developed in Europe and can be traced back ultimately to a Swiss linguist, linguist working in the early decades of the 20th century, Ferdinand de Saussure, and his lectures got transcribed by students, and that the book of these transcribed lectures was used to inaugurate a whole series of offshoots of his uh, book, which is actually a book of linguistics. And um, just really briefly, a thumbnail sketch of structuralism is that structuralism uh, looks for underlying patterns and ultimately thinks of um, language as constructed almost like you might construct uh, different um, Legos, uh, different Lego structures out of Legos, and it's almost as if language has these these little pieces that are put together in particular ways. And depending on what you're reading, uh, and you you know you, what you understand to be, say, a novel versus a uh, versus an autobiography versus a work of philosophy or whatever, it's um, nonetheless made up of uh, these little constituent parts, these pieces, um, and those pieces can be boiled down really to the sign and variations on the sign um, or various combinations of particular patterns or combinations of signs that register to us as say a particular literary genre and um, in terms of the and this is a really bare bones a simplistic summary of structuralism but uh, just to say the sign then is supposed to be uh, so it's supposed to involve a signifier which would be like a, a, a a sound or an image um, or a sound image or a word uh, written on the page and that signifier is supposed to point to a meaning sort of a, a, an underlying meaning uh, that is known as the signified and that whole thing is known as the sign and that's the basic unit in structuralist analysis in, in an tremendously simplified way. And then you can have combinations of signs, as I was saying, like combinations of Lego blocks that can make up different literary structures, okay, or different different uh, communicative, communicative structures. And structuralism branches out into media studies and cultural studies of all varieties. And, and so, um, you know, you might have, say, the news bulletin uh, as a kind of a genre in a way of, a, in a particular historical context. Okay, so that's structuralism and then you have folks who come along okay so in the caricature of structuralism that I've just described uh, there's the idea that uh, oh there's some kind of signifier some kind of image or um, uh, representation uh, say a, a word typed out on a page uh, and that is the signifier and that points us to some kind of some underlying meaning and we dig it up and that's the sign and there's a basic uh, we can look at any text, uh, and by using this method of analysis, we ought to have a pretty good idea of what it means. And of course, there are endless variations on that, and there can be lots of complexities that we can spell out, and maybe it works differently if it's a detective novel versus if it's a scientific paper published in a research journal, but because we understand genre and other sorts of uh, structural aspects 
of the text or even of the paratext, things that are outside the text, but that provide it with context. Um, because we understand all of this as good structuralists, we can find meaning and we can understand, you know, how texts work and how they operate and get down like uh, mechanics working on a car and see the inner workings. Okay, so there's sort of a, one of the, the, the excitement around structuralism, and that excitement ultimately, um, uh, I don't want to say fades, but it, it shifts as structuralists then begin to question their own methods, and some structuralists ends up, end up really becoming uh, better known as post-structuralists, or known for their, for sort of having a foot in both categories. And I'm thinking in particular of Roland Barth, um, who is a famous structuralist, a French structuralist, and then also um, really provides, uh, writes some of the key texts that launch um, launch the disciplines in the humanities into uh, the post-structuralist moment. Um, okay, so what is the breaking point or what is the difference? Well, to talk about the difference between structuralism and post-structuralism, I want us to think again of, sorry to say it, the Bible. Okay, so uh, Remember that we had this idea that the Bible is the story of Jesus and it's built out of the Old Testament and that um, Jesus, uh, uh, the earthly embodiment of uh, Old Old Testament uh, prophecy. And um, anyway, so then, um, and, and part of his arrival has to do with a, a sort of a real and true in, interpretation of God's law and, and him having... A better handle on that than the you know the money lenders in the temple and so on um, all right so by the way I have to get a drink and I've, I've noticed that if I take a normal drink it really registers on the microphone so I have to do this very quietly okay so post-structuralism uh, involves looking at this idea of the sign and saying, hold on, what do we get to when we get to meaning? What is it made of? It's made of more signs. It's made of more signifiers, and, and maybe they're tied to signifiers, maybe not, but uh, you know, it just is a, a sign pointing to another sign, pointing to another sign, and so on and so forth, a series of empty boxes. Uh, but what about a text like the Bible? This is a text that ought to have real and lasting and concrete concepts that we can agree upon. And certainly, it would seem that most Christians must believe that on some level, that, that there are comprehensible, um, clear messages in the Bible that we can rely upon and, and trust as you know the Word of God, um, and that we can build beliefs around. Uh, okay, so, uh, there is this odd thing about the Bible uh, that I have read, what little parts of it I have read, being in English. Hmm, uh, why is that a problem? Well, it wasn't written in English. Well, God didn't, wasn't speaking in English? Well, uh, how does that work? Well, um, no, it turns out that the people who were writing uh, the texts that we call the Bible today were not speaking English at all. The English didn't really exist. They were using other languages. In fact, some of the words that they're using are, are so old that there's a lot of uh, uncertainty about what the, they might mean. Uh, huh. 
So there's an odd thing then about the Bible being, on the one hand, uh, the Word of God, something that ought to be solid and concrete and relied upon, and on the other hand, um, realizing that it's often in a language that we don't really speak or understand, and it's been translated into the language that we do understand. So it turns out that, in a way, the Bible uh, that I know, that I think that I know, is a translation of, in many cases, another, perhaps another translation, and uh, an amalgamation, uh, or in some cases, an amalgamation, a, a, a best, the best judgment, the best estimate of what maybe should be said in English. Uh, of course, there's much d dispute about Bible translations, different Bible translations, dispute about which Bible ought to be translated, and then also disputes about how best to use English in order to translate what we think the Bible that we decided to translate uh, ought to, or how it best might be expressed in English. Um, so, in effect, what we're looking at is a text that people are relying upon, uh, sometimes, of course, arguing about, but uh, basically uh, agreeing upon as the ultimate moral, ethical, uh, religious, spiritual guidebook. And we have a text that is not one text at all. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's countless different versions of texts that approximate one another and that seem to be mostly based on a few of the oldest existing texts as far as we can understand those ancient languages that they were written in and as sort of as as best we can estimate uh, the we being the experts that we rely upon to do this kind of research and come make these kinds of decisions the textual scholars who specialize in in trying to maintain some kind of fidelity to an original even as they know that there is no original, at least not that we possess, and if there was an original, it has long since vanished into the ash heap of history. So, there is a text at the center, and at the same time, uh, there is no one text, there's a million different varieties of texts at the center. Okay, now let me just pause here for a moment to reflect on this idea of uh, the Bible as a text. Now, um, you know, the Bible is a strange and complicated and massive document, and parts of it are almost unreadable, uh, like the Book of Numbers or something, which as I understand it is almost like a census. Uh, or, you know, the so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so and so-and-so, and so on and so forth. Uh, if you've ever tried to read that stuff, that, that's, um, it's odd, right? You, you kind of go, well, why is this here? Does this matter? Which part of this text matters most? And of course, in the history of Christianity, we have the rise of uh, a massive church, the Roman Catholic Church, which ultimately for a long time in, in Europe, is the ultimate authority on how to read the Bible. And then we have the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, where, you know, there's a break um, in, in, from the Catholic Church, and a over a couple hundred years, um, 
and some of those years overlapping with the founding of the United States, uh, you have the dispersal of Protestantism into all of these various sects, Methodism, uh, you know, Episcopal Church, Presbyterian Church, uh, Baptists, um, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, so on and so forth. So, um, so there's an elaboration of interpretive modes in a, when it comes to the Bible itself. Um, and even within the Bible, we have stories that over and over again uh, teach us or comment on how to understand what, what we are reading. In other words, the Bible itself often reads like a meta-commentary on how to read the Bible, especially when the New Testament emerges. And the New Testament, which is, you know, sort of a fulfillment, ostensibly, of various prophecies, including a prophecy about a Messiah from the Old Testament, um, the New Testament then is teaching us how to read the Old Testament, or, or attempts to do so. Je little recap here. We're looking at Harriet Jacobs' incidents in the life of a slave girl, and I'm making some observations about the ways in which the text, Harriet Jacobs' Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, uh, is a meta-commentary meta that is teaching us or calling our attention to our interpretive lenses as readers. Now, uh, the way that this is being done is by a narrator in a position of complete powerlessness, reading back a common text, the Bible, to the master uh, who wields his power over her. She's saying, huh, you know, I've read the same book, and I don't think it actually says that I should do what you're telling me to do. I don't think that you're living in accordance with its principles. And so there is uh, an element of in which there is authority when enforced by physical violence. And then there is a textual record. And Harriet Jacobs is constructing a textual record of her life in which she is the master and the authority. She is mastering, you could say, Dr. Flint. She controls Dr. Flint's destiny in this text. Uh, and within this text, she is also appealing to a higher authority. She is appealing to God. And the way that she's appealing to God is by showing a mastery or an authority over an understanding of God's book, of God's words, of the Bible, of the law. The Old Testament, I believe, Torah means law uh, in Hebrew. And so she is reading God's law, and she's reading it back to the, to the person who uh, would be, was, her master. And so there's, a, as, I, as I'm saying, a, a meta-commentary, sort of a, 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 um, a stepping outside of the room and seeing it from above, 
um, in which the text is commenting uh, it, at the same time that it's telling a story, it's also demonstrating in that in that story um, that there is a higher authority um, when it comes to um, understanding and interpretations and the notion of right, and that that higher authority supersedes white sovereignty. You could say. Uh, Dr. Flint, as the sovereign, as the, as the person in power and in control of his own destiny and in control of Linda's dex destiny in the text, or at least that's, how, that's what he believes he is, um, actually is um, his power has been superseded because he now stands inside L Linda's story. He stands inside Harriet Jacobs' story. Uh, the Bible of her life, incidents in the life of a slave girl. And in a, in a, in a sly manner, and in, in a manner that is, uh, uh, that I'll, and I'll explain this in a moment, but just to say briefly, in a manner that is uh, copacetic, you could say, with a lot of the values of uh, post-structuralist theory, uh, or at least some of the values of post-structuralist theory, uh, she's inserting into her text like a, a box inside of a box inside of a box, uh, commentary on the act of reading and the act of interpretation. Who gets to master and demonstrate mastery over a text? And she here trumps Dr. Flint, and it's captured also the same um, trumping of Dr. Flint, the same troping on Dr. Flint's religion, uh, what, what Henry Louis Gates Jr. calls troping, um, what he calls signifying, um, using the word that, that has a long history in, uh, in black culture in the United States, uh, like playing the dozens, that kind of thing. But uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr. in Signifying Monkey famously talks about legacies of black literature, um, African-American literature in the United States that use, uh, uh, that that contain examples of troping and that trope on one another or that signify to one another and often by twisting the words of the master. And, um, and this is also shown in Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl or captured in a, in a brilliant, I think, in a super concise way, which is just, um, you know, which is a strategy that also will, we, we see in Frederick Douglass's narrative and that we see um, most famously uh, a few decades later with uh, W.E.B. Du Bois' um, Souls of Black Folk when he includes commentary and lines from what he calls the Sorrow Songs, um, the roots of, of black music that, uh, that become the blues. Okay, so uh, I'm running ahead of myself a little bit now, so let me back up. I'm talking about Sorrow Songs, W.E.B. Du Bois, The Souls of Black Folk, uh, one of the foundational texts of American culture and the black experience, history of the black experience in the United States, one of the uh, sort of foundational historical texts, I believe, of the, of the contemporary United States. A crucial book, crucial text, uh, W.E.D. Du Bois wrote that text after doing all, the, all this touring and research uh, after the, in the post-Civil War South on, on black, uh, black history and culture and the, the, the history of Reconstruction also. Um, and he used portions from songs sung by the enslaved as the, 
epigraphs and uh, introductions and so on to the chapters in his in his landmark text, The Souls of Black Folk. Those were the sorrow songs. And the songs singing is something that also comes up in Frederick Douglass's narrative. Uh, he talks about the fact that um, the, the complexity of emotion that exists in the songs sung by the enslaved. In Harriet Jacobs' text, as I say, she is again quoting from a song sung by slaves. And oh, But in that song, there is also a biblical commentary, the use of the Bible, story of the Bible, Satan and God, uh, to trope, to comment on, to toy with, uh, metaphorically, to toy with enslavement, right? So, all Satan's church is down below, right? That's talking about, of course, slavery in the South. It's using the biblical metaphor. It's reading the Bible back. It's mirroring back and uh, lifting up messages from the Bible and using them as commentary, uh, and at the same time, in doing so, in providing this rereading, reading or rereading, reinterpretation of the Bible, it's a commentary on society. And then for Harriet Jacobs to be citing it, to be citing the slave song, uh, is a box inside of a box inside of a box, and somewhere inside of that box is the Bible. Now, by the time we open that last box and find the Bible, structuralists might be tempted to say, aha, now we can localize, locate, identify, mark, tag, uh, categorize, and uh, fully account for meaning or whatever the, the possible meanings might be in this text. Um, however, post-structuralists will remind us that even if we un, uh, opened, uh, even if we opened and, and uh, removed one final text, and that text is the Bible, we're right back where we started because the Bible, as we have said, uh, what it actually contains, what it means, how to translate it, and uh, which, which portions of it are most important, uh, how to deal with words from languages that no one speaks anymore and, and the meanings of which have become lost over time, how to translate things that you can't understand in the original. All of these questions surround the Bible itself and make any reliance upon it or the idea that, aha, now we have an illusion, uh, illusion to the Bible so we can understand exactly what it is that Harriet Jacobs is trying to say or, uh, well, that's foolhardy, post-structuralists tell us. Perhaps better to observe the ways in which the narrator of the construction, or Harriet, and or Harriet Jacobs, in the construction of this text, is using all of these techniques to cast her society in a particular mold, to portray it in a particular way, and to uh, use the pre-existing text, though, built-in modes of meaning-making to her advantage so as to question and to undermine and to uh, ultimately to, to resist and even to transform the structures of, of meaning such as they are that are 
operating in her society as she knows it. Uh, and so her text, which is using other texts in order to comment on her society, and at the same time, her text, which is telling us to pay attention to how we read texts and uh, to pay attention to the ways that, that texts might read us, the way that texts might uh, coach us or uh, condition us into certain modes of understanding, uh, to be aware of all of these, these qualities and considerations. And, uh, and also to see that if we are talking about, for example, the Bible as the text, the law, uh, there's no question who's standing on the right side of that law. And it's the woman at the center of this text in control of the narr narrative. It's uh, the narrator. And in her use of the Bible, she is troping on the lessons of the Bible, on the God's law, and she's doing it in a way to completely uh, uh, emasculate her master, Dr. Flint. Thank you for listening. I'm going to leave it there. Um, what I've tried to cover is the, the wonderfully amazing, elaborate intertextuality of Harriet Jacobs' incidents in the life of a slave girl. One last thing to point out in that passage that I read from at the end of chapter 13, the language that Harriet Jacobs is, is writing in in that paragraph is absolutely biblical. It's as if it's, it's the kind of inverted syntax and, and um, there's, it has an arch quality that, that sounds sort of archaic and authoritative. It's very much like the language in the, in the King James Bible. Uh, and so if you don't, uh, if you didn't revisit that paragraph previously, take another look at it. And I think you'll see, if you, especially if you try and read it out loud, uh, what I mean when I make that observation. Uh, her book is signifying all over the place, troping on pre-existing tropes, meanings of the Bible and uh, interpretations of God's law, what it means to think about the world in terms of good and evil, and who falls into which category. All of these things are in play in her text, and the metaphors active throughout are, are another way that she makes those metaphors manifest. Uh, I could keep talking, but really I need to stop. Uh, again, thank you for listening. If you have any questions, thoughts, ideas, concerns, please do email me, uh, participate in discussion board, let me know how the reading is going, and please stay healthy, get a lot of rest, and uh, reach out to loved ones and friends, and I hope to speak with all of you soon.